We come now to the last in our series in the book of Isaiah. We've been looking at chapter 40, and uh, this morning we'll be studying together verses 12 to 31, Isaiah chapter 40. And to uh, close the series off and set the context, we're going to read the whole chapter. So those of you who feel strong enough, let's stand, and if you don't feel strong enough, while we read the whole chapter, no shame, that's fine. So Isaiah chapter 40, as I say, we're looking at verses 12 to 31 this morning, but we'll begin reading it in verse 1 of chapter 40 and read the whole chapter. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she is received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. And then this is the section we're looking at this morning, beginning at verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollows of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing, an emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it 
And a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning... Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is God's word. I don't know whether you've ever been in a situation where someone has said something so surprising that it has left you dumbfounded, um, struggling for words, and you, you, you sort of ask a whole bunch of astonished questions when they said, who, why, what, how, when? Something like that happened to me recently when I was um, getting my hair cut, the hairdresser, a, a, a procedure that is rather less expensive than it used to be. We were talking away as she was cutting my hair and she noticed that I have an accent and uh, she said, how long have you been in America? And I said, well, we came over in 1999, and we lived for about nine years on the East Coast, and we've been in Chicago, uh, the Chicago area, uh, Chicago land, for almost 14 years now. And uh, then she said, well, you've kept your accent. And I said, yes, indeed, true. Um, I've noticed that when people move to another country, when they're adults, they tend to keep uh, their accent. She paused, thinking, and then she said, what language do they speak in England? 
Who? Why? What? When? How? I'm a pastor, and I felt that I needed to be as gentle as I could. So all I could think of saying was, they speak English in England. (laughs) Something like that is happening to the prophet here. The passage we've just read out uh, is known as a disputation. What that means is scholars imagine that uh, it was first delivered in the context of the city gates of some ancient city. When a statement was made that became a dispute, a debate, a disputation. Uh, the statement you'll find uh, right here on, uh, in verse 27 on the lips of Jacob of Israel, of God's people. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? This is what they were saying. My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. See, they're picking up on what the prophet has been saying. That phrase, that, that, that my way, is almost certainly reflecting something that he has preached earlier, back in verse 3 of the chapter, when the voice, one of these dramatizations, the preacher's message, he says, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. But now his hearers say, but my way is hidden from the Lord. And my right is disregarded by my God. He doesn't care and he doesn't know. And to that, the prophet is so flummoxed. He asks a whole series of different questions. Who, why, what, when, have you not known? Do you not understand? Essentially, what was happening was that Israel, Jacob, God's people, had in their mind a wrong idea of who God was. And therefore, though he'd been preaching, as we've been seeing, that comfort comes from the gospel, though he'd been saying that, they could not get it because they didn't get who God was. Something very similar is going on today in in this country and indeed the whole Western world. It is at the heart of the challenge of what it means to be a Christian today. We can say till we're blue in the face, us Christians, believe the gospel, trust in Jesus, believe in God. But what we need to realize is that the shape of what's in people's minds when they hear God is not what we mean by God. This has become blatantly obvious increasingly. Well, a survey came out in uh, 2021 by Barna Group, one of these big um, statistical survey, Christian survey companies that surveyed Americans and found that of the predominant worldview, 88% of Americans had what they called a syncretistic view of God. What that means is a pick and mix bit of this, bit of that, bit of the other. And if within that syncretistic view of God there was a particular leaning within that 88% of all the different options, all the different kinds of gods, 
the leaning was to what they called moralistic therapeutic deism, which is a bit of a mouthful, but essentially what it means is that within the leaning of syncretism, the predominant leaning would be a view that if you're good, moralistic, you get to go to heaven. Uh, It's a scales, more good, more bad, you'll get to heaven, moralistic. Deistic, the view of God is that he's distant. He's not really involved. He doesn't really do stuff. He's sort of somewhere out there. And therapeutic, that is, the the predominant idea of what life is about is to be happy. And then preachers like me or Christians like us here who believe in Jesus go out there and say, you've got to follow Jesus and pick up your cross and follow him. And we're surprised that people cannot compute what we're saying. What do you mean? Life is about moralistic therapeutic deism. If I'm good, I get to go to heaven. God is somewhere up in the sky. And and anyway, life's about being happy, isn't it? And anyway, there are all these different options out there. Syncretistic, a bit of this, a bit of that, a bit of the other. Something similar was facing Isaiah when he was bringing comfort from the gospel. And what we need to do is to examine carefully how he approached it so that we too, here in this church, can have a right view of God and proclaim effectively a right view of God to those around. You see, in our vision statement as a church, we have our mission statement, which is proclaiming the gospel, but very carefully in our vision statement, we express that as the God-centered gospel because if people don't understand who God is, they won't understand the gospel. Let's see how Isaiah approaches that in this passage. First of all, I want you to notice all these surprise questions. They're they're everywhere, aren't they? Verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? He goes on and on about this, doesn't he? And then uh, verse 13, who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Uh, Whom did he consult? Or then verse 18, to whom then will you liken God? Verse 21, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? All these questions that, that, that express the, the flummox, the dumbfounded nature of what the prophet was feeling. How, how can you say that? You know, verse 22, it is he who sits above the circles of the earth. It happens who bring princes nothing. Scarcely, scarcely, verse 24, are they planted. When, they, when, the, when he blows on them, to whom then will you compare me? Have you, verse 28, have you not known? Have you not heard? Now, scholars do point out that there are themes in all these surprise questions, and that indeed is true. Um, so there's a theme of the universe, verse 12, who's, who's measured the waters, the whole uh, the physical material reality, the heavens with the span, the dust of the earth. And then verses 13, 13 and 14 have a theme of knowledge, of understanding, who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or as the footnote has it, it could be who has directed 
uh, the Spirit of the Lord, or as the Greek translation puts it, the mind of the Lord. But if the Spirit of the Lord is the right translation, the emphasis here is obviously on what God is thinking, what man shows him his counsel, whom did he consult, who made him understand. So there's a theme of the universe, there's a theme of knowledge, there's a theme of the nations, isn't there? Verse 15, behold the nations, all the different peoples, they're, they're accounted as the dust on the scales. In other words, that they don't even, if you had a scales and you put something to measure on it, the, the whole, all the peoples in the world are nothing more than the dust on the scales that doesn't even measure compared to who God is. And so there's a theme of the nations, and there's a theme of, of worship. Verse 16, Lebanon will not suffice for fuel, nor its beasts enough for burnt offering. And Lebanon, of course, was the place famous for its forestry and the number of trees that it had. What's being said there, it's a bit like saying that the whole of northern Canada, with all its trees, is not enough to produce enough fuel for the kind of burnt offerings that God would require. And then again you get the nations, uh, verse uh, 17. And then it returns to the universe, verse 22. It's he who sits above the circle of the earth and then sort of bounces back down to the peoples. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. And then back up to the universe again, uh, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. And then there's a theme of, uh, of the rulers, the governing authorities, the powers that be. Verse 23, he brings princes to nothing, makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither. All the, all the time we spend on CNN or Fox News or BBC or whatever your news channel may be, thinking about all the powers that be and the prophets saying, he blows on them and they wither. Emptiness compared to who God is. So there are these different themes. There's a theme of the stars, verse 26. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He's thinking about the stars. But the overall impression is astonishment. How could someone say, as they were saying, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God, when they knew who if they understood who God was. The only possible conclusion is they did not. Well, they weren't thinking straight. Uh, scholars would say that it's an extended comparison between God and other things. And, of course, there's truth to that. He is making a comparison. But the, the better way of putting it would be that really what the prophet is saying is that God is incomparable. Uh, you, he's above and beyond. And this is brought out by a brilliant structure in the passage. So if you look at verse 18, he says, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? Of course, the point being nothing is like God. But then that's emphasized by basically the same words being repeated in verse 25. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. 
And similarly, there's this underlining of this incomparability of God by a repeated phrase in verse 21, do you not know, do you not hear? And then verse 28, have you not known, have you not heard? I think the prophet referencing what he's been preaching. Haven't you heard? Haven't you been listening to what I've been saying? Isn't this exactly what you've been told from the beginning? It's the same message, but do you still not get it? In particular, scholars point out that there is, in the focal center of the prophet's rhetoric, the predominant issue that was facing God's people Namely, idolatry. What kind of God they were worshipping. This, of course, is brought out in verse 19 and 20. Here, the prophet has, Isaiah has some of his characteristic sarcasm when it comes to idols. Uh, Verse 18, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. All this effort, all this money, all this skill, you've got to get the best craftsman for your idol. And the end of the day, can't even move. He, he, he's got this sarcasm that he brings out about idols in various places from chapter 40 all the way to chapter 55. That's very much of the central focal point of the prophet's mind. You can see this in the famous section in Isaiah 44 from verses 9 to 20. It's worth studying if you get home to look at it, just how he does it. But it, it's, it's really quite, well, it's funny. It's definitely sarcastic. I, I won't go through it all. But for instance, verse 16, he's talking about how an idol is made, he says, half of it, that is the wood that goes towards making an idol, he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat, he roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, aha, I'm warm, I've seen the fire. So he uses half it to make a fire to keep himself warm and to to roast meat. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol. And he falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my god. What he's made from wood. I suppose few of us here are tempted to build a little statue. But the idolatry here is more than a physical emblem. Uh, Some scholars think that uh, the the prophet is thinking particularly about the Babylonian syncretism with all their different pantheon of gods. And that's certainly possible. One that was predominant at the time was the god called Marduk. And in this chapter, Isaiah introduces various phrases that could be intended to be an apologetic to show that Marduk is not really God. 
which they may have been tempted to think, given that they've just been told they're going to exile with Babylon. Maybe those gods, those syncretistic gods, are the real powers. And Marduk uh, was said to, when he, in the myth, the Babylonian myth that I've studied and read, in the Babylonian myth, it said that he consulted with other gods when he created the universe. But here, Isaiah says about the real God, whom did he consult? And who made him understand? God didn't consult with anyone, not the real God. Now, Marduk is said to have um, arranged the stars, but about the real God. Lift up on your eyes high and see who created these. He brings out their host by number, yes, but he calls them all by name. God knows the names of the stars. By the greatness of his might. He's not one among many syncretistic gods. He's the Lord. Could be that the the prophet Isaiah is thinking particularly about uh, the Babylonian gods. And indeed in chapter 46 verse 1 he says this. Baal bows down. Baal is another name for Marduk. Nebo stoops. Uh, Nebo in the Babylonian myth was uh, an offspring of, of Bel. And we get uh, the, the character that appears in the Bible, Nebuchadnezzar, from the, the, the name of the god Nebo. So it could be that he's thinking about specifically Babylonian gods, but of course there are lots of other gods that the Israelites were tempted by. Other kinds of syncretistic tendencies. One was Molech. Molech was the god that demanded child sacrifice. If you came in this morning, you may have noticed there's a fresh lick of paint on the, on the doors on the way in. And the reason for that is, earlier this morning, when I arrived early to get ready to preach, there was a graffiti. And the graffiti said, abortion is blessed. Abortion is godly. Of course, the question is, what kind of God is that worshipping? Molech? But we shouldn't be quick to point fingers and judge other people. Senior Christian leaders across the Western world over the last 10, 15 years, if you listen to their conversations with one another, have been increasingly concerned that the church in the West has fundamentally become corrupted and invaded by syncretism. Other kinds of views of God. How else could we say, as the Israelites said, 
my way is hidden from the Lord. How could, how could their way be hidden from the Lord if he's the Lord? How is that possible? The only way you could think or feel that is if you don't think or feel that really he knows everything. How is it possible that they would say, my right is disregarded by my God? I'm not going to get my just desserts. How could anyone possibly think that who actually believes in the God of the Bible, the covenant God who loves his people, who gave the blood of his, us who stand on the other side of the cross now in the New Testament world, who understand better his love, who gave his own blood for his church. How could such people ever think That God doesn't care about what is right for us. The only way we could think or feel like that is if we don't have a right and true understanding of who God is. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Here's the the theological center of it. Verse 28, who is the Lord? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Essentially then what he's saying here is this comfort that we've been considering together, this power, this strength, this salvation ultimately comes when we when we rely on the one true God. The one true God. Not Marduk, not Molech, not syncretism, the one true God. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. That God. What does it mean to rely upon him? Well, he, of course, that's the... The call of the passage is in verse 31. It says, they who wait for the Lord, or I think better translated probably in in more recent version of the ESV, it puts it like this, they who wait upon the Lord. What does it mean to wait upon the Lord? It doesn't mean to wait in the sense of maybe he'll turn up one day and now I'm waiting in line. That's not what it means. What it means is to yield to the Lord. It is to say, he's God. I'm not. Have your own way, Lord. Have your own way. It is to yield to God. It is to depend upon God. That's what it means to wait upon the Lord. Even youths will grow tired and stumble. I, I, I don't think anyone will now anymore call me young, apart from my father, which is always good. And the other day I was asked uh, by Michael to go down and um, spend some time with the, the 20s who were doing spike ball in the gym. And I thought that would be fun, so I went down there ready to join in. And indeed, I did join in, and I played spike ball, and I was brilliant, by the way. No, I wasn't, but I, I, I joined in. And, and, but, but as soon as I did, I, think, I don't think I said this to you, Michael, but as soon as I said it to my wife when I got home, as soon as I walked in the door, I thought, oh, I'm old. Like the palpable energy in that room. 
And you sort of walk in and go, okay, now, okay, yeah, I really am old. But this is going to be fun. I had a great time. Even youth, you young people, don't rely on your strength. You clever people don't rely on your cleverness. You rich people don't rely upon your riches. To wait upon the Lord is to depend upon him. What does the Bible say? Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. To yield, to depend. It also means to expect. That's why some translations translate this wait upon the Lord as to hope. But that's not quite right either because to hope in the way we use hope has a sense of I hope it might happen but I don't know whether it will. But to wait upon the Lord has a sense of expectancy. This is the Lord, the everlasting God. Jesus says, I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He is able to do abundantly more than we can ask or imagine. We expect. What, what, what's God going to do now? We yield to him. We depend upon him. We expect from him. But then obviously, of course, to wait upon the Lord also means to be patient. Not everything that is promised to us And certainly not everything we hope for will we experience in this life. And part of being a Christian, part of being a mature Christian, is to be patient. To wait upon the Lord. I was thinking about that this week. There's a a well-known conference It's been going on for some years called the Passion Conference. And it's a very good conference. A lot of good, well-known preachers have headlined it. And it's a huge conference, the Passion Conference. But as I was thinking about that this week, I thought, I wonder whether we could get as many people to turn up for a conference that wasn't called the Passion Conference. It was called the Patience Conference. Probably not. I suspect we need that, patience, even more than passion, or at least as much. Comfort comes from those, as we put it in the thesis statement for the sermon, those who rely upon the Lord, yield, depend, expect, and are patient. Well, how, though, do we bring this down to earth uh, for ourselves this, this weekend? I think a little bit of diagnosis is probably called for. Let's throw out a few themes. Church. Someone who self-identifies as a Christian and yet never is involved in a church. Now, I know that there can be seasons of life. I understand that we have people who've watched us on live stream and YouTube and then have come to church as a result and come to know Jesus as a result. It's a great mission tool. I get that. 
I know there are times when people are sick and unable to get to church, seasons of life when people are older and unable to get to church. We visit, we care for such folk. I get all that. But someone who is self-identifying as a Christian, a believer in God, a follower of Jesus, self-identifying, and yet never is involved in church, Well, we have to ask, don't we, what kind of God are they really believing in? Certainly not the God who gave his own blood for the church. Not that God. How could they, if they are not involved in the church, believe in that God? It's impossible. What kind of God are they believing in? Certainly not the Jesus whose bride is the church. They can't be following that, Jesus. Not really. Well, let's throw out another one, money. Someone who self-identifies as a Christian... but never gives any money to the work of the gospel. Now, again, I understand there can be seasons of life, seasons where things are really hard. We have, uh, Michael mentioned earlier, a care and share fund for, for such times. And I understand that there can be developments of spiritual maturity when people begin to grasp what it really means to follow Jesus and give all their life to him. And uh, I understand all that. But someone who's self identifies as, as, a, as a Christian, but never gives any money to the work of the gospel, what kind of God are they believing in? The God of mammon? Certainly not the God who says, invest your treasure in heaven where thieves cannot break in and steal and rust will not destroy. Not that God. Or life, we've mentioned that earlier. And again, I know it's a controversial issue, but we believe in the God who makes every single human being in his image. And all are equally valuable. You say, Pastor, you're getting too picky. You've been reading too many books. You've been studying Barna Group statistics or, or, or too much. What, what does it really matter? If someone actually believes in God, why does it matter how you define what that God is? Let them be a little bit syncretistic. At least they're starting to believe in God. You know, it, it, it's too, you'll be too picky. It's just a small thing. Small things have huge implications. Behavior comes from belief. A.W. Tozer said, the most important thing you can know about a person is what they think of when they think of God. Small things have huge ramifications in the spiritual realm. I'll leave you with this. It's a little bit of a kind of silly illustration, I suppose, at the end, but it it makes the point about small things. The King James Version was first came out in the 17th century, of course, and 
Uh, it was republished, being republished many, many, many times. One infamous republication of the King James Version came out in 1631 and is known as the Wicked Bible. And the reason why it's the Wicked Bible is the publisher somehow got one little detail wrong about one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery, had a rather important word missing. Not. The Wicked Bible. What kind of God are you believing in? And could it be that your spiritual life is on hold or on pause? Because right down at root, the everlasting God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, hasn't yet grabbed you and shown you his beauty and power. Here's a distinction to keep in mind that I think will bring it home to you. Idols of whatever kind always demand blood sacrifice. Molech demands the sacrifice of children. The God of money demands the sacrifice of your time, your family, and your health to be wealthy. The God of fame demands the sacrifice often of all sorts of psychological stability that you come across when people have lived in the celebrity world. We're not made to be the center of attention. We can't take it. We're not gods. People who seek that out sacrifice themselves for that end. But the real God of the Bible, he has it the other way around. He sacrifices himself for you. He gives his blood for you. That's how you tell the difference. And that's the God we worship. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord God, we do uh, pray that we would grasp again for many of us your incomparability. Please remove from us any kinds of syncretism. I pray, Lord, that our minds and hearts be shaped by your revealed word as to who you are. And help us all, Lord, to wait upon you, to yield to you, to depend upon you, to expect great things from you. And yes, Lord, to be patient. So, Lord, that we might run and not grow weary, walk and not be faint, even ride up on wings like eagles. Oh, Lord, would it be so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.